This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 1774, a wheat farmer from Virginia with refined manners and a quiet lifestyle was moved to put himself forward as the military leader of the most massive rebellion the British Empire had ever suffered. George Washington had been a stout upholder of the status quo, regularly lending money to his ne'er-do-well neighbour simply in order to keep him in the plantation to which he'd become accustomed. He even wrote himself a book on how to behave properly in polite society. What drove him to revolution? Washington may have been a moral man, but by anyone's account he was no scholar, yet the American Constitution is one of the great Enlightenment documents. Who provided its intellectual inspiration? Inspiration, And where does that come from? With me to discuss George Washington and the American Revolution is Carol Birkin, Professor of History at the City University of New York and author of A Brilliant Solution, Inventing the American Constitution, Colin Bonwick, Professor Emeritus in American History at Keele University, and Simon Middleton, Lecturer in American History at the University of East Anglia. Carol Birkin, let's start with events that led up to the American Revolution. There were 13 states in continental America that participated in the war. How far was, how was their governance organized prior to the revolution? Well, they were colonies of the king uh, prior to the revolution. Their governments varied, but by the eve of the American Revolution, they were really relatively similar. And I think the key point is that the local assemblies, the representative assemblies, local men who were chosen by local voters came to see themselves, had come to see themselves as mini-parliaments, that is, as the real government of the colony, not the governor, not the council. And I think much of the conflict that ensued after the French and Indian War comes from their notion that they had the right to make the laws for their colony. The French and Indian War, the dates of that were? Uh, 1754 to 1763. Mm. And that is the in America, it's called the Great War for Empire between France and England. And this is what really leads to a reorganization of the British uh, governance policy toward the colonies. And this is when the conflict occurs. We're talking about 13 colonies. Do, do they owe each of the most direct allegiance to London, as it were, to the British? Absolutely. Empire? So we're not talking about, a, we're not talking about a, a United States. Not at all. States, not at all. Yeah. And this is one of, I think, the hardest things for my students to grasp, is that people thought of themselves as Marylanders, as Virginians, as Connecticut men. And in fact, when George Washington asks the New Jersey troops during the American Revolution to... Uh, swear allegiance to the United States, they say, no, my country is New Jersey. And so you really have to think of them as 13 very separate entities that have developed the same kind of governance structure, almost organically. I mean, it just arises, but they are in no way, uh, think of themselves as American. The first time they were brought together was in 1774 for a Continental Congress. What triggered that event? The Boston Tea Party, where Americans destroy private property, which is a very distressing experience uh, for the British. And they close the port of Boston and say, until you pay the money back to the East India Tea Company, you cannot engage in trade. Then they call a Continental Congress. And this is the beginning of this kind of cooperation of these 13 colonies, soon-to-be states. 
and it's prompted by British policy. I mean, in a way, the British drive the Americans into cooperation. Those these 13 colonies into cooperation, yes, yes in yes. 64 and 74. Simon Middleton, Boston in those days was a very long way from George Washington's plantation in Virginia. Mm. What was going on that would make a farmer, who would probably rather regard himself as English, who had fought uh, alongside the British and the French in the, uh, in the French and Indian War, who wanted a commission in the British Army. Mm, sure. uh, what drove him to uh, uh, offer his services as a military leader against King George III? Um, I think in order to stand, understand George Washington's motivation, we've got to look at what he did between the periods in which he was um, engaged in military activities in the French and Indian War and then as a great leader of the Continental Army. And what he did between those two periods was, was concentrate on tobacco farming in Virginia. And it's the nature of tobacco production and the nature of the economy surrounding tobacco, I think, that provides the best explanation for Washington and men of his ilk and, and, and why they get involved in the revolution. Um, tobacco is a crop which... Um, um, encourages a, a, um, a kind of culture around it because the, the people who plant it and grow it share many things. They share the difficulties of producing the leaf, which is very difficult to do. They share um, the economic relationships with the merchants in London who they supply the tobacco to. Um, and it's out of the uh, commitment to tobacco um, where the standard of the leaf that the man produces can become identified as part of his reputation. That they, they get very invested in this crop. And a collapse of the tobacco market in the 1760s and early 1770s, um, that Washington's motivation and people like him come. The, 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 I think the insight that we have is that, is that the, uh, the guys in London who Washington ships his, his crop to um, are basically financiers. But in the world of Virginian tobacco growing, they, they call them friends. They call these merchants in London friends. Um, and, they, and in many ways they were when they sent their kids to London to school or to visit. The, the, their contacts in London who bought their crop would also, you know, look after their children and so forth. But at the end of the day, it was a commercial relationship. And the war debts that Carol just spoke about in, after the French and Indian War caused a, a serious contraction in the credit um, around the empire in the 1760s and 70s. And it's a, it's a consequence of that that these, these supposed, quote-unquote, friends in London begin to call in Washington's notes and begin to refuse to extend the kind of credit that they have done up until that point. Um, when this happens to a single person on a single plantation, it causes them immediate distress. But when they go to the House of Burgesses in Virginia to meet and, and, and discuss policy, or they go to sit as members of the court or as, at a militia gathering, and they get talking to each other, and they find out that all these merchants in London are doing it to all of their neighbours as well, that's when they begin to fear there's something else going on behind this. They begin to worry about conspiracies and they begin to worry about plots to try and, um, you know, to, de de to deprive them of their liberties. And it's out of that experience that mm -hmm. Washington becomes a, re a revolutionary. Just to clarify two things, I introduced... Um Washington as a wheat farm because mm -hmm. he was a failure as a tobacco farmer. He was a failure as a tobacco And he made, yeah. it made more of a living yeah. as a wheat yeah. farmer, yeah. so I gave him the benefit of the wheat in that <laughs> one. And secondly, when we're talking about the Continental Army, we're talking to uh, people about the American Army. After the, after the after Second the, Congress yeah. in 1975. Yeah. Yeah. Do you agree, then, with the... Uh, the, the, the <coughs> which was suggested by Carol, although the strange thing about the stamp duty in 1964 is that it didn't lead to a revolution. The, 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 th the general theory is punitive taxes from London on these lusty growths of uh, uh, British persons over uh, 3,000 miles away across the sea and then more than that away inland led to the revolution. Now, mm -hmm. what's the, what about the punitive taxation theory? Um, Seems a long way, a bit of a long way after the stamp duty, doesn't it? Well, I think that's... A long time after it. That's, that, that, that's the problem that people have had trying to explain the motivation to go to, to, um, to, for the revolution. 
because I don't think it's the taxes in and of themselves. It's not the right. monetary value of the taxation, because actually they weren't that punitive. And this is the problem that the English legislators had. That, you know, the, uh, the Sugar Act in 1764 actually, I think, reduces the duty on molasses. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it enforces it more strictly, and it cuts down on the smugglers, because people had, you know, had, had always evaded the taxes. It's more what the taxes represent as, a, as, a, as an act of authority, an act which is considered arbitrary. And, what, and I think the explanation, we can maybe get into this um, a little bit later, is, is the nature of Republican political theory, um, because um, the argument that these people had gotten used to governing themselves and then suddenly there was this very kind of ham-fisted government policy which, you know, people were not happy about paying these taxes, doesn't really explain, as you've raised yourself, the timing of the revolution. Why, why is it 1776 and not 1764? Or indeed, you know, Americans had, had complained about um, duties and about regulation of their trade for 100 years or more, but they submitted to it. What is it about the 1760s and 1770s that leads to this break, this seizure in the imperial relationship. And I think it's to do with um, uh, the, ways in, the ways in which those taxes are... The, the, the framework they're placed within is a Republican framework, and that Republican framework tells Americans to be very worried about arbitrary power, mm -hmm. to suspect conspiracy, to mm -hmm. look for tyranny, and it's that that impels them into revolution. Well, we're, we're certainly going to come in on that, but, mm. but just to take the story forward, Colin Bolmick, hostilities break out at Lexington and Concord, the shot that rang around the world, <laughs> in 1775. Can you just tell our listeners what happened there and how this thing began, as it were, this revolution began? Yes, indeed. Uh, the Continental Congress in 1774 had enacted what they called an association, which is essentially a protest movement, and that developed through a network of committees throughout the 13 colonies. And in the winter of 74-75, in Massachusetts in particular, the local members of the committee began collecting arms uh, with a view uh, to resisting, if necessary, <coughs> by force. And the British work comparably to that. And there is a British governor who is also a military man, General Gage, in Boston. Uh, and then in the early months of 75, it really simply drifts onwards. And uh, General Gage sends out a party to capture what he believes correctly, in fact, to be a, a store of armaments in Concord, uh, the American militias who are still only local farmers, really, mm -hmm. uh, prepare to protect their stores. And in the course of events, the uh, British party goes out in the early morning and they bump into a small group of uh, militiamen on Lexington Green. They call it a battle, and indeed the shot did fire throughout the world. But in, it's a trivial event. Mm -hmm. The British simply push them aside <laughs> and go on to Concord. And it's there that the real determining battle takes place a little later on the same day because the British are prevented from getting the armaments. They are forced back and into Boston. They suffer significant casualties, and from that point onwards, they're bottled up in Boston. Can I ask you at this stage, Colin Bonwick, uh, I've read that, that at this stage uh, you have about a third of the people roughly, who are for uh, this fight, as it were, a third who are really against it and a third who are indifferent. When did it begin, when did, when did the um, colonies um, 
and colonists begin to think we are fighting for independence because you use the word drift, which I think is a very good word from what I've read. It drifts on for quite a few months, doesn't it? It isn't as if we will rise up, we will storm this or storm that. Mm. There's this brush on Lexington Green. Which, yes. uh, there's this sort of... Uh, we, we're talking about... Can you just take us through the next 14 months? Yes, uh, it is uh, a, a drifting process and you can look at the correspondence of virtually all the mega figures who survive and they're all saying at the beginning of that 14 months this is a problem that we can resolve within the context of mm. the British Empire to which we are committed yeah. uh, uh, providing of course our interests and in particular what we see as our political rights are uh, safeguarded. Then you can follow them through uh, the uh, late months of 75 onwards into the beginning of 76 and you see them slowly one after the other beginning to change their minds mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that crystallises that uh, is the publication of Thomas right. Paine's Common Sense mm -hmm. in January of 76 now this is a brilliant piece of writing, it is an absolutely sparkling piece of uh, literature as well as a pro political uh, uh, propaganda and it persuades uh, a lot of people, uh, even uh, extremely conservative Virginia gentlemen mm. uh, like Carter Braxton is persuaded by common sense. Persuaded that? That it is necessary uh, to declare independence. He destroys it's the argument that uh, uh, the, uh, the American colonies owe allegiance to the Crown. Can we talk uh, briefly, Carol, about the people who drafted this great declaration, one or two of them, who was, who was in that drafting? Where did they come from? Well, actually, independence is declared when Richard Henry Lee stands yeah, up and exactly. passes yeah. a motion and says, we are independent, and they vote yes. And then they decide they have to have a public declaration about this. They're, they're highly legalistic. Uh, they, they want to state the reasons why it is justifiable that they make this revolution. And most people, uh, they appoint a committee, uh, Roger Sherman, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams. There's someone else on the committee. And everybody says, you write it, you write it. And they finally tell Thomas Jefferson, who's the junior member of the committee from Virginia, to write the declaration. Uh, Partly because they want to tie Virginia to this revolution. Yeah, Virgin but what, where did it come? Where did this this idea, uh, the ideas in it, come from? Well, it has two parts. The first part, which most Americans think is the important part, the preamble, that says basically people have a right to overthrow a government that has been unjust to them, that we are created equal. This was actually boilerplate. That was not the important part of the Declaration to them. To them, the important part of the Declaration were the statements that said, this is what the king has done that justifies us breaking the contract with him. It's a very John Lockean notion that the governed and the governors have a contract with one another, and when the governors don't govern in the interest of the people, the people have a right to rebel. And so they list scores of things in theory, the king has done that proves he's a tyrant. And that was the part that mattered to them because to justify a revolution against your legitimate king, your ruler, they had to persuade the American people uh, who were, after all, going to fight the war. These men were the leaders. They weren't, Washington accepted, going to fight. So that's the part of the Declaration that matters.
But let's go back to this, this great preamble of Simon Middleton. Mm-hmm. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a declaration which comes out of a classical education, really, mm-hmm. doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. you can put Hobbes, Locke, but mm-hmm. back to Cicero, mm-hmm. and, and so on. So mm-hmm. can you just give us some of the intellectual background to that? And we're talking about some scholars, the people mm-hmm. you've mentioned, Carol, mm-hmm. I mean, Jefferson mm-hmm. and so on. They, mm-hmm. they, they admire the republic. Public, the mm-hmm. idea of the great mm-hmm. Roman Republic. Exactly. There is, there's been considerable... It's part of the Enlightenment, because in Britain mm-hmm. at the same time, we're mm-hmm. going back to Rome. Mm-hmm. They're looking at Roman mm-hmm. virtues. We're so getting so. our ideas yeah. Yeah. directly there from British writers. There is a kind British of pan, pan-Atlantic uh, Absolutely. Enlightenment, Absolutely. isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It crosses the Atlantic, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and one of the nicest symbols of that uh, is that the transit of Venus, uh, which crossed the uh, sun in 1769, right. mm-hmm. was observed not only by Captain Cook in Tahiti on behalf of the British but it was also observed by David Rittenhouse in Philadelphia and Mm -hmm. Joseph Brown in Mm -hmm. Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, There is an enormous sense of the enlightenment of being a cultural world which crosses the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's what they... I mean, people like Jefferson and and even people like Payne weren't saying anything that was highly original. It was all all borrowed and, and, and picked up from... From, from European thinkers, particularly English mm. thinkers. There, um, there is a tension, though, I think, within the Declaration of Independence and actually within the whole period uh, around the themes of individualism and, the, and, and collectivism. And I think that um, scholars have argued back and forth over whether the, whether the, the, the Declaration of Independence is, is, is purely a Lockean document concerned with individual rights and the protection of them, or whether there, are, there aren't also strains of Scottish Enlightenment um, people like Francis Hutchinson and 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 Came and and Smith, um, and and a, and a sense in which um, man as a moral being has a, 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 a sense and a faculty to distinguish between good and evil and and virtue and corruption and so forth. And that that's why that, that much store has been put by the claim that um, by the sentence by the use of pursuit of happiness rather than protection of property, because the introduction of this notion of pursuit of happiness and that this is something that the government should be judged by whether or not its people are happy is seen to be you know a, a theme within more of the Scottish Enlightenment than the English Enlightenment of the late 17th century. And I think it's a bit of a stretch, frankly, and I think that not to, to, to try and argue lock out of the, the Declaration of Independence is, is mostly a exactly. fruitless exercise. Interesting this swirl, isn't it? Because it's not just... A, it, we're, talking about, uh, we're talking about London, Edinburgh, we're talking yeah. about Virginia uh, in America, we're talking about Paris as well. This great swirl of, yes. uh-huh. of similar ideas uh-huh. going yes. around, mm-hmm. and they're driven by the Enlightenment notion, they're driven by going back to Republican ideas, uh-huh. Republican in the sense of, yes. the, of what they envisage slightly idealistically as the great uh, Roman Republic. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think they do. And what they certainly mean about a republic is a great deal more than simply a system without a king. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, there is, I think, a battle going on here uh, between two intellectual um, traditions, uh, each of which, of course, derives from uh, classical uh, origins uh, in the world of Greece and Rome, uh, and it is the tradition of what they call cult- classical um, uh, republicanism, which stretches the, stretches the importance of community uh, as the context within, within which men uh, exist. A uh, citizen. And, uh, yeah. As a citizen, mm. uh, a man as a citizen uh, with duties as well as right, uh, and in particular the duty to place the interests of the corporate community Mm -hmm. over Mm -hmm. the private individual interests of the individual citizen. Can I use that as an introduction to to bring Washington back into it now? The the idea, he was very much uh, of that uh, nature, wasn't he? He would not be paid for the presidency. He was a man who served, although he loved being at Mount Vernon uh, and on his farm, he would 
pack, Cincinnati, he'd like the, the f farmer in Roman times, he would mm -hmm. pack up his bags and go and serve his country. Uh, that idea of can you just can we just say a little more about Washington as a, a military leader, as a man? How did these ideas come to him? Because the impression that one gets is that he was not a man of these sort of ideas. He went along with them. He probably liked to talk about them, but he wasn't. They, they didn't infect him like they oh, didn't no, say he, Jefferson. He, so. he was not a man who speculated, at least not on paper, mm -hmm. about intellectual ideas. Washington uh, was a, a, a planter. He was also a man uh, who was interested in military affairs. He'd been a colonel of militia. He'd shared uh, in British campaigns during the Seven Years' War. Mm -hmm. In fact, at one point, he was desperate for a commission British in the British Army, Army indeed, yeah. which he was denied. Uh, that was it, a mistake. That was a terrible <laughs> mistake. <laughs> Uh, Jefferson actually held... Depends the Atlantic you're on, of course. <laughs> although, although, although Gates and Arnold were better generals, so they probably might still have won the war with Gates and Arnold. Exactly. And with yeah. the French. Don't forget yeah. the, the French. French. Yeah. Yes. Let's stick to Washington. Probably. Yes. Uh, he was a man well chosen because he represented Virginia, and he tied Virginia in. Virginia was important because it was it's, very rich. It's very rich. It's by far the largest And state. the largest. And so if you had a southerner coming north, to the, uh, then it yeah, made exactly. it feel as if it were exactly. a sort of... Exactly. It was Han, exactly. it were the, the 13 colonies were uniting exactly. by that fact yeah. alone. Yeah. 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 Fine. Uh, Virginia in the, uh, in the 18th century was far more important relative to the other states uh, than even California or New York are now. Uh, and um, Washington had some limited military experience. He was chosen to represent Virginia. Uh, it turned out to be a good choice because although he made some catastrophic mistakes uh, in the early months of the war, uh, he was able to learn from his experience. And in particular, what he learned was as long as he kept his Continental Army intact, exactly. in existence, exactly. uh, the revolution would survive. I think Washington was famous for being a micromanager above all else. I mean, I, I read somewhere recently that there are 25 volumes of wartime correspondence. I mean, you think the war has only lasted for five years. I mean, he's, you know, he was constantly writing to Congress and constantly managing the relationship between the military and the civil, constantly responding to complaints and, and, then, free, and then by the 1778 mutinies and, and, and then these kinds of problems, defending, him, defending himself from other officers who there was a plot even to oust him after the, after mm -hmm. the, the, um, the loss of New York. <coughs> and it comes back to really, I mean, we've got to try and not think of this. I mean, earlier on we were talking about when did the colonists become united behind the cause. I don't think they ever became united behind right. the cause. One, right. of the, one of the shibboleths of 18th century American history with regard to the revolution is that this was a, this was a war for who should rule at home as well as home rule. Um, this was a war that was fought between Americans, between families, mm -hmm. and it was a war in which many people, it was a kind of passing thing. The armies would pass through your neighbourhood and maybe you would become embroiled in this struggle for a period of months, but then it would be happening in the south or in the north. So there's never really a great co collective struggle that and in, uh, Well, there's, there's oh. always the standard story about the farmers who had a British flag and an American flag, <laughs> and when the British army marched through, they put rang, and they sold uh, crops and, and horses to anybody who would pay. Mm -hmm. The key about the American Revolution is it was an actual civil war in the South. Mm -hmm. In the Carolinas, this was a brutal war between backcountry farmers who felt oppressed by the Tidewater mm -hmm. planters mm -hmm. in exactly the same way that the Tidewater planters were describing themselves as oppressed by the British government. Brutal fighting between South Carolinians where where atrocities of war were committed that were just extraordinary. So this, this was, didn't involve the British at all? It didn't involve well, British at all. Wars like this unleash 
or release an enormous number of long-standing yeah. conflicts and tensions. And at Yorktown, that's, that's where we have the, the victory of Washington with, with this overwhelming number of French and mm-hmm. so on. The, there, are, there are certain things about Washington I cannot tell a lie, refusing fear. Never President, said. Uh, never said that. <laughs> yes. This is all rubbish, is it? But what sort of person, can we just have an yeah, accurate I, c- yeah. character study uh, uh, in a thumbnail sketch of his Well, he was physically an extremely large man and he was said to be uh, a superb horseman. Uh, he was, of course, a rich man, but he also had uh, an enormous sense of his own Mm -hmm. self-worth, a great sense of gravitas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's said uh, that uh, one rather daring, uh, uh, originally New Yorker, Governor Morris, uh, <laughs> for a bet, yes. uh, said he would go up to Washington and slap him on the back. <laughs> well, he did. Washington fixed him with such a ferocious stare that uh, Governor Morris virtually disappeared through the floor. <laughs> no, he, he, he was a very essential man precisely because he had, he, he'd managed to keep the Continental Army intact. He'd been uh, responsible more than anyone else for victory in this extremely long, long and also, I think, worth saying, mm-hmm. uncertain war. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, uh, and... Uh, he represented the richest and the largest, mm. the most important state. So that when you get uh, to uh, a proposal to reconsider the structure of the uh, federal government, Washington really is the only possible man uh, to elect as president under the new regime. There's still this fascination that the ideas are, are, de- are working inside this quite deeply, uh, the ideas of good governance, the ideas of uh, and ideas which come from the American European Enlightenment and going back to... And we're talking about... We're not really talking about democracy here, are we? Not you know, at people all. think American Revolution, democracy, no. all men equal away we go. We're not talking about that, are we? Mm-hmm. Right. Not Will you at kick all. off with that? Not yet. I wanted to tell you first. It's yeah. a process of becoming democratic. But it's representative government thereafter, aren't they? Yes. Well, people can yes. be on juries, but yeah. people can't be judges. Absolutely. Uh, that is a sharp distinction. Uh, that they have common sense uh, to uh, make judgments, uh, but they don't have the intellectual capacity and the experience uh, to uh, be mm-hmm. judges. So we're not talking about... An, an, a they thought democracy was the equivalent of mob rule. They believed very firmly that if you didn't have anything to risk, you should not make decisions. The old stake in society, which is an English, was an English notion, that men of property, men who had something to risk, would judge wisely. But what makes Washington, I think, so much a representative of this Republican virtue notion is he believed that the decision, decisions you made as the governors must be for the welfare of the people. And so that's you had to place your trust in essence in this idea that men who govern would govern for for the people for the common it's weal. It's back to the Platonic idea of wise men running. Yeah, them. many of the men at the Constitutional Convention wanted a Senate for life, so that these men would be above strife and above electoral politics, mm-hmm. and they would. And the assumption was then that they would be wiser and more judicious in their judgment. And then they became concerned. Well. Maybe they won't, because look what happened to all the republics. The lessons of history mm-hmm. were very clear that all republics eventually degenerate into tyrannies yeah. of some sort. This tension is never resolved. And when you read the records of the Constitutional Convention, this belief that you had to empower 
virtuous men to govern wisely, but you had to watch them mm. constantly and check their power mm-hmm. constantly. Mm-hmm. That's the essence of the Constitutional mm-hmm. Convention. Simon, I think I think one of the stories of the American Revolution is is, the, uh, is a kind of a collapse of idealism. I think they start out in way more idealistic terms, and they and there is a commitment, especially amongst the ruling class, that this men of virtue will work out. But then it's when George Washington's trying to get the money to feed and clothe the Continental Army, and the men of virtue in Massachusetts won't pay up, or the men of virtue in South Carolina, they realize that, in fact, this is, you know, this is not going to work out. And this is when the liberal themes, the themes of individualism and the right. theme, and the greatest, you could say one of the greatest insights in terms of political theory that comes out of the American Revolution is Madison's Federalist 10, Madison's argument that, in fact, it's, it's fruitless uh, to try and build a body politic and based on the supposition of harmony, and that virtuous men will rule in the, in the, and the interest groups will not will not assert themselves. We have to develop a political structure which recognizes and, in fact, embraces faction and interest and uses them against each other to balance off their ill effects. Thank you very much, dear Carol Birkin, Simon Middleton, and Colin Bonwick. Uh, we're off here now till September. In the meantime, there's a quiz on our website, and we're thinking of kicking off uh, next season with the origins of life. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.